is difficult for humanity to handle. We've seen that over the last couple of weeks, that we move toward things that enslave us by nature. And we said last week that the gospel is the great news. Not just good, it's great news. That God has rescued, redefined, and redirected our lives in light of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And so now we turn to Galatians chapter 1 again this week. I'm going to read chapter, uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, and then I'm going to skip down and read from verse 10 of chapter 1 through verse 10 of chapter 2. Would you stand with me if you're able and willing? The grass withers and the flowers fade, friend, but this is God's word, and it stands forever. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. And now verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went up into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in the persons to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved in you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me On the contrary, 
when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his gospel, uh, apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, received the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you'll take your word, that as we sit and as we look at your word in our laps, that you might penetrate our hearts by the truth of the good news of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 30 days, 24 pounds, a 13% increase in his body mass index. His cholesterol swelled to 230. He had sexual dysfunction, fat accumulated in his liver. He couldn't stay focused. He was tired. He wasn't sleeping well. In 30 days, that's what happened to a very fit and trim and in shape Morgan Spurlock, who decided that he would eat from one very famous fast food place every day, every meal for 30 days. Three weeks in, he said to his doctor, it is still so delicious. And in the documentary, his doctor said, it looks like food tastes like food, but it's not real food. And if you don't get off this diet, Morgan, my friend, it will kill you. Paul is facing a group of people who are consuming something that looks like the gospel, tastes like the gospel, smells like the gospel, but it is not the real gospel. And if they do not turn from it, it will kill them. Sounds like it. Tastes like it, reads like it, but it's not the real gospel. You see, there are two issues in the book of Galatians, two primary issues, and we've talked about one already, that people who had understood the gospel for themselves had heard a false gospel given to them by people who looked very religious, seemed to be very learned people, and had turned their hearts from the true gospel of justification by faith alone to believing a gospel where you have to be circumcised in order to be made right with God. And circumcision for the book of Galatians is for us a metaphor of anything that you add to earn God's approval, your good works, your success, your financial portfolio, whatever it is that you do to try to earn God's acceptance for you to become a Christian. That was the first issue that Paul comes unglued about he doesn't give a eucharizo, a greeting of thanksgiving to the first of Galatians. He gives a thamazo, which in Greek is a formal rebuke. I'm astonished, he says. Now, packed tightly around that thamazo, the Greek word for rebuke, packed tightly around it is the second issue of Galatians. And that is the nature of Paul's authority. Because notice how he introduces himself. 
He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men. And then jump down to verse 10. He says, listen, am I seeking the approval of man or of God? I'm not trying to please man. If I were still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. And then he goes on to give his credentials. There are two issues in this book for Christians. Then and now. The first is that we often turn our hearts toward false gods that are not true gods. The second, and maybe for us in a Christian subculture, even more important. It's not just the turning of our hearts. It is the tuning of our ears to different authorities in our lives. You turn and you tune. Those are the two issues in the book of Galatians. And he'll come back to this again and again and again. Turning and tuning. So let me give you the principle of the text that he draws out in this long passage that I read from 110 all the way down to 210. And then we're going to talk about it together. Here's the principle. You and I by nature know how to repent and believe. In fact, you are constantly repenting and believing. And you repent and you believe toward your authorities in your life. You've always been doing this. You're doing it right now. The question is for us, are those authorities in your life abusing you or are they liberating you? Does that to which you constantly repent, constantly turn your gaze back forward, toward your acceptance, for your approval, is that abusive? Does it create a negative feedback loop where you're always trying to re-up your relationship to it, whatever it might be, as we'll talk about? Or does it liberate you? Hmm? That's the question. Are your authorities abusive or are they liberating? In this text, exegetically, if you lower your eyes to it, you'll see that Paul talks about his authority immediately. And he says, listen, guys, this is not from me. I received this from Christ. I received this not from me. I had no incentive to believe this whatsoever. And so Paul explains in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, and then again in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 1, that he had an external call. That is, he was objectively called by someone outside of him. Then in verses 13 through 24, you see that Paul has an internal call. He is subjectively called to the gospel. And then in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, you see that Paul is ordained or he is officially called. So he's objectively called, he's subjectively called, and then by the other apostles, he is officially called. Look, he's objectively called. He was not called by any man, but he was called by Jesus Christ. Do you remember in Acts chapter 9 when Paul was on his way to persecute the Christians? He had a legal notarized letter from the Roman government that gave him warrants to enter homes of Christians, to arrest them and to kill them. He makes no mistakes about it, he says. He tried to destroy Christianity. Do you remember in Acts chapter 7, the martyrdom of Stephen? Who was the authority in the room? At whose feet did they lay the coats? They laid them at the feet of Saul. Who is the Apostle Paul? 
And here, he has this amazing external call by Jesus objectively from him. Then he has a subjective call. He says, even though he tried to persecute the church of God, listen, he was compelled by the gospel to go and preach it to the Gentiles. And he says he did that. He went out through Cilicia and he went and he preached. Maybe he did a few conferences. Um, Maybe he was a guest preacher at some churches. It would have been amazing to have seen it. And then he finally comes back to Jerusalem and he receives his official call, his ordination. And he goes and he sees the pillars of the church, those who seemed influential, Peter, James, and John. And he goes to them and he preaches the gospel that he'd received from them. And it says remarkably that they added nothing to it. Why? Because the gospel he was preaching was the true gospel. And he was concerned that he had been running the race in vain. And they said, no, no, what you're preaching, justification by faith alone is the true gospel. And we are laying our hands on you. We're extending our right hand of fellowship, as the text says, to commission you like we did Peter to the Jews. We're commissioning you to go to the Gentiles. And so to the Gentiles he goes. All right. These Gentiles, they are Galatians, and who in the first century were the Gauls. They were the people who were conquered by the Celts. Then they were conquered by the Greeks. Then they were conquered by the Romans. These are people who had known warfare for 400 years in their life. And in modern day Turkey, where Galatia, whether you take the view that the Galatia was written to the political nation state of Galatia at the day, or just the people who were called the Galatians in a cultural sense, there's two different Galatias that scholars argue about who were the recipients of the book. It makes no matter. The Galatians were war-torn and weary people. And because they were trying to settle in modern-day Turkey after 400 years of war from the Celts, from the Greeks, from the Romans, they highly valued two very, very important principles. Self-discipline and control. Those are two very highly prized values. They had a character program in their town. It would say every month, self-discipline control. They would just alternate. They were fierce about their self-discipline. They were hungry to get settled in this new land. And so they believed the gospel that Paul preached to them. And then some Judaizers came in and said, hey, listen, we want you to know something, that Paul is a Johnny-come-lately. He's not one of the original 12. He doesn't know the whole story. And we, who are good Jews, are going to bring you the good news. And so they preached to him that you have to add works to your faith in order for God to accept you. And when you have people who love self-discipline and love control, the Judaizers said to them, you know what, I'm going to give you the greatest gift in your life. I'm going to give you the ability to judge God's approval of you. And you're going to be able to judge his approval of you by your performances. And to a people who love to be in control and love to be self-disciplined, it was sugar candy to them. And they took it. You mean that I can always measure God's acceptance of me by my behavior? Okay, I can measure that. I'll take it. Yes to that. And it may seem strange to us, but it shouldn't. You hear about this all the time in Tulsa. Oh, you mean God accepts me whenever I'm financially wealthy? Oh, I can measure that. You mean I can have everything the world wants and just tag thank you Jesus onto the end of it? Call myself a Christian? 
yes to that. Or you mean that I can just become a Christian and have a relationship with Jesus, but, but it's not important I join a church. It's not important that I get baptized. It's not important that I become part of an accountability structure. I don't really need anybody else. I can just, it can just be me. I love Christianity, but I hate the church. Really? Yes to that, most people say. But Paul says if you believe that, you believe it at your peril. This happens to all of us. Every single one of us. Because we constantly are hearing other voices tell us what it is that we need to measure our acceptance in our lives by. And you constantly repent toward that thing. So for example, men, those of you who really are concerned about how much is in your bank account, please hear me. You are constantly repenting back toward your account. You're constantly looking at it for affirmation. How am I doing? Is it enough? And you start using, somehow you've created this line of success that my life is legitimate and I can feel good about myself if it's over this certain number, whatever it is. You all have a number. And you begin to slowly measure yourself by that. And you become enslaved to it. You're constantly believing that your wealth is your worth. And you repent and you believe in it again and again and again. Or those of you who um, are on social media and you just love to be the smart, witty, funny, clever, good-looking guy on social media and you know who you are and you're constantly looking at your phone and every few minutes, you know, you're the guy who's looking at his phone. You're, you're sizing yourself up against the comments that are said about your profile or on your pictures. And you don't think about it, but you're constantly repenting. You're turning your allegiance back to that to give you the esteem that you crave. It's just like it was in Galatia. Or women who feel pressured by the men they date to have sex with them because they fear the rejection that will come if they say no. And so they repent back to him. He becomes their greatest authority in their life. Listen, every single one of us have authorities in our lives that we are constantly repenting toward. This is a natural part of being human. And we tend to think of our hearts as though they are, there's an image that you can see, they are just like a normal heart that might have one idol. Maybe there's one idol that attacks them. And that one idol, you see it, and you see that it has changed your heart, it has enslaved you in some way, and you think, if I could just get into this one thing, my life would be so much better. But the truth of what Scripture teaches is that your heart is not enslaved by one idol. Your heart is a factory of idols. And your heart becomes enslaved, not just one, but thousands. And they become for you little authorities that you tune your ear to for your acceptance. And you listen to them all the time. And friends, the only way you can come out from this slavery where kids and lust and porn and money and many Things that in and of themselves, like your children, or the use of money, or your spiritual devotions, are beautiful and rich and good things. They become for you over-desires. And you begin to use them to judge your relationship with Jesus, and you find yourself deeper and deeper enslaved. And you're constantly repenting back to whatever the authority is in your life. Are you with me? Does that make sense? That concept is very important. You're by nature repenters. The question is, to what authority are you repenting? And it is only in the gospel of Jesus Christ, friends, where these good things in your life can become just that, 
great things in your life to be used for the kingdom of the Lord. And they don't own you anymore. They can exist in your life. And they're beautiful and good and right things. Your children's success is beautiful. Your financial wealth is important. But it's not the thing that owns you. Like you want to take care of your family, but you don't want to be owned by it. And it is only in the one who comes to you, the Lord Jesus Christ, who says to you that all of those false idols I've taken upon myself on the cross, and I have been crucified, and with me so also did the power, rather, the penalty that we deserved in light of all of those has died with me. But the power of those idols will still exist. And as Christians, you have to constantly come back and ask yourself, what is your authority? What is the authority in your life? So what is it? Your authority owns you. It owns your self-image. It owns what you think about other people because it controls the way you think about other people. It owns you. Is your authority liberating or is it abusive? Now, let me take you a little deeper. Paul received the gospel from the Lord and he was told to preach. And then there's an interesting interpretive decision that people who edited the ESV made. And it's in verse 16. Lower your eyes and look at verse 16. It says in verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Now the word anyone, or an NIV, if you like the NIV, it says, I did not consult with any man or any others. Literally in Greek, it said, I did not consult with flesh and blood. And there's an interesting place where there are two places in Scripture. This is one, and I'm going to take you to the other one, where divine revelation and the messenger of divine revelation are separated to make it very clear that divine revelation is objectively true and the messenger who brings it is not in and of himself, the one who has the authority. It is the divine revelation who has the authority. So flip in your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 16. And there, Peter is talking to Jesus. And Simon Peter says, Peter, Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus himself is saying, the divine revelation that you've received is not your subjective revelation. It is given to you from the outside. It is the rock-hard diamond truth, the divine revelation given to you. And then just a few verses later, whenever Jesus is with his disciples and Jesus tells them in a very short time, I'm going to die. And Peter says, not on my watch, you're not. And what does the one, Peter, the rock upon whom Jesus would build his church, what does Jesus say to him? He says, get behind me, Satan. So within a very, very short time, Jesus goes from saying, upon you, this rock, I'm going to build my church because what you have is not from flesh and blood, but from my Father in heaven, to saying, get behind me. How can you understand that? You understand it because what is true is the objective revelation of Jesus, not the one who is bringing the good news. 
And this is important for us to understand because this happens all the time. All the time. You grow up in a church where the leader of that church is winsome, he speaks well in public, he sounds like he knows what he's talking about, and slowly but surely you develop a cult of personality around your leader. And you don't realize that the objective truth of Scripture is separated from him, right? The, the easiest cult to pick on in this way is Mormonism. Mormons believe that the authority rests in whom? It rests in the priesthood and in the president of the Mormon church. So, for example, for many, many years in the Mormon church, they did not believe that African Americans could be ordained to the priesthood. That was rock solid, hard, objective, supposedly truth in the Mormon church. And then, actually not very long ago, aha, a new revelation comes. And all of a sudden they announced to the church, now African Americans can be ordained to the priesthood in the Mormon church. Which is it? Or you have a church where you begin to believe that your leaders are teaching you that you have to in order, do these seven steps in order to have a right relationship with Jesus. And they begin to tell you that you must do these things. And these things, which become great and good things in and of themselves, become terrible burdens on your soul. And you begin to wonder if you're a good Christian because you didn't happen to do whatever it is that they asked you to do that week. And you slowly but surely bring together what Jesus clearly keeps separate. The objective truth of the rock-hard diamond of Scripture, divine revelation, and the messengers who bring it. And this, friends, is what Peter's trying to do. I mean, Paul's trying to do. He's trying to help them to see that what I brought to you was not from me. It was the diamond of objective truth upon which you can put your firm footing. And believing other authorities, tuning your ears to them, will enslave you and it will abuse you. It is not liberating. So, that leaves us with a very practical question. How do you know that the authorities in your life are liberating rather than abusive? How do you know that you are, your authority really is the objective truth of holy writ, God's divine word, Jesus, the living word of God, and his justifying work in your life, or if it's some other authority. How do you know, for example, living and growing up in Oklahoma, or in the South, like most of us did, that Christianity hasn't just overshadowed you, but it's penetrated you? The gospel overshadows everybody in this town. You know that, right? Because it is the, the default understood Still to this day, although maybe it is declining, depends on the stats that you read, it is the default faith of most people in this city, although 85% actually don't go to church. Interesting. But how do you know that you don't, you're not just overshadowed by Christianity, but that you've been penetrated by it? The difference is the nature of your salvation or that you're not saved. It's huge. And Paul says that there are three ways there are three ways that you can spiritually know that you have been penetrated by the gospel. And what's the first way? In reading what Paul says here, you notice, number one, what are the spiritual signs that you can begin to understand that you have been penetrated by the gospel, that it is your authority, it is not just overshadowing you, you don't just live in the environment of Christianity, but it is yours. Number one, Paul says 
that the object of action changes in your life. The object of action. Let me explain what I mean. Notice if you read from verse 10 down through verse 14, if you lower your eyes and you look at it, please look at it with me. Notice who is the subject of all of these sentences. For I, verse 11. Verse 12, for I did not receive, but I received it. I persecuted the church. Verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism before. Now notice verse 15, what happens? There's a but, an Allah in Greek. There's a contrasting word. And no matter who you are, every testimony that we give, there are unique aspects of it. You know, listen, Paul was a weird dude. And all of us are weird. We've got weird, we're weird, right? And there are unique aspects to all of our salvation. But all of our testimony, I mean, unique aspects to our testimony, but all of our testimonies have this truth in it, that somewhere along the line, you stopped seeing that you were the one doing all the work and you started seeing that you were acted upon. Because notice the way that verse 15 on reads. It doesn't say, for I, for I. Then it says what? It says beginning in verse 15, but when he... Jesus set me apart before I was born. He who called me by his grace. He who was pleased to reveal his son. It's about him. And someone in your testimonies, one of the reasons you know that you've been penetrated by the gospel is because your testimony is not about you anymore. It's about what God has done in you. Has this happened to you? Do you see your life? as something that has been acted upon rather than by something that you are constantly trying to do, your performance, the action. At some point, every single one of us have a profound sense of power that comes upon us and acts upon us. And we didn't intend for it to happen. In some ways, it felt like it came out of the blue. But you become the object, not the subject. You're acted upon. Now, what else do we see here? Secondly, Paul shows us that one of the ways that you can know that you've been penetrated by the gospel, that it is your authority, not just one of many, but it is your authority. Notice in verse 17, it says that Paul, after he was converted, he went where? He went away into Arabia. Now, we don't know what he did in Arabia, nor do we know how long he was there exactly. But one of the ways that you know that you've been penetrated by the gospel is you can be alone with God. And some of you... You're great with God when you're with your family, and you're great with God when you're at church. But when you leave students, when you go off to college, you want nothing to do with God. You run from Him because you can't be alone with Him. You don't, you've never been penetrated by the gospel. You've been, in the, you've been overshadowed by it, but you haven't been penetrated by it. And so, like some of you, like when you, like, it's hard for us to pray for 10 minutes because we run out of things to say. It's hard for us to be alone with Him. Can you be alone with them? Now, I know that you pray at meals. That's not alone with them. I know you come to church. And I rarely say this. I'm always talking about how important it is to be in corporate worship. But there's an aspect in which you have got to be able to be alone with God. Can you be? The essence of man sometimes is being able to sit quietly in a room with no noise with his own thoughts. Do those thoughts turn Godward? Paul went into Arabia for a long period of time because he knew he needed to be alone. How about you? Has the gospel penetrated you or are you just overshadowed by it? Thirdly, and very quickly, 
there was a radical change in his nature. And people saw it. In chapter 2, Paul brings Barnabas and Titus and they go to Jerusalem and they preach the gospel there and he brings it to the brothers, Peter, James, and John and the apostles. And they give him the right hand of fellowship and ordination. And they say to him, when Paul was preaching the gospel, that they glorified God because of him. Do people see and glorify God because of the changed life that you live? It's one of the evidences. It's not watertight. You can fake that pretty easy. But it is one of the evidences that only you know. And this is a question for you. You're not asking other people. You're asking you. Have you been penetrated by the gospel? Or are you just overshadowed by it? Is your life different? Paul's life could not be any more different. He was a persecutor of the church, and then he turns to be the preacher and proclaimer of the gospel to the Gentile world. And some of you say, well, listen, I don't, I don't persecute the church. I'm not like Paul. Well, maybe. We'll talk about this in a couple of chapters. In chapter 4, the very end of chapter 4, in verses 28 and 29, Paul gives this metaphor where he talks about two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And he says one of these sons was driven by performance. And one of these sons was driven by faith. And the son who was driven by performance persecuted the son who was driven by faith. And he makes this very, very curious comment. And so... Chapter 4, verse 29, it is now. What does he mean? He means that if you're driven by performance, you cannot help. You cannot help but persecute other people because you're constantly judging them because it is your performance that matters. You have to have somebody to look down your nose at because it's your performance that matters. And one of the signs that you're growing in your relationship with Jesus, that the gospel has penetrated you, is that you can hear people who may totally disagree with you may totally believe something different than you, and you can hear them and you can engage them in complete and mutual respect and not grow self-defensive, not have to look down your nose at them. And this is very important for the church in our town to understand, and it's important for me to understand and for you that when you tune your ears to other authorities, you will be by nature persecutors of other people because you will, in your judgment toward them, constantly be weighing your performance against the world. So you either have worldly repentance, tuning your ears to authorities that are not the rock-hard, objective, diamond truth of Scripture, or you will practice biblical, gospel-centered repentance. And the good news, the good news of the gospel is that that liberating freedom that comes to you in the gospel is available to you now. Paul says grace and peace be to you. He brings two things that were utterly at odds, grace and peace. Peace could not be attained in the ancient world except through warfare. And Paul says, ah, actually it's obtained through grace. Not the warfare of your performance or of your works righteousness or constantly looking to other people to give you the approval you need but it is in the finished work of Jesus for you who loves you, who took upon himself all the idols of your heart so that the penalty of those idols may not be yours, but that you might push against the power by retuning your ear to the gospel week after week. So that, friends, is the good news. You constantly repent. What is the authority to which you repent? Is it Jesus Christ who liberates you who frees you, who sings over you his love. Oh, I pray that it is. He's here for you.
trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will help us as your people to practice biblical gospel-centered repentance, that you will turn our habits away from the worldly authorities to which we are enslaved, and that you would redirect us yet again to the only authority who can liberate us, the living Word of God, Jesus Christ himself. Lord Christ, would you penetrate our hearts? Let us not just be overshadowed by Christianity in Owasso, in Tulsa, in Bartlesville, but penetrate us by your Holy Spirit so that we see that it is not us who is doing the action, but we look back and we recognize that it was you who set us apart, just like you did, Paul. And may others glorify you because of us. It is about you, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name.